We've been in Matthew's Gospel for several weeks now when we are pausing our study in Matthew today, Thursday, and next Sunday to look at a, at a different portion of Scripture that pertains most beautifully to all of the events that this, what we call, Holy Week of the Church is all about. We start with Palm Sunday when we talk about Holy Week. And it's, it's just a church term. It's not any more holy as a week than any other of 51 weeks in a year. But it's holy in respect that all of what God had intended to do for all of mankind throughout all of the ages was fulfilled in those events that took place during this special Holy Week. The Palm Sunday celebration, if you will, of Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And I use that term triumphally entering Jerusalem sort of in a limited sense. It wasn't really a triumph because he was rejected. His true triumphal entry will come much, much later, a little bit more than seven years from now, just a little. And we're not going to be discussing that triumphal entry, although that was indeed the purpose that God had given with regard to His second coming, that He would enter into Jerusalem as the true King of Israel. And that, again, did not happen on the day that we are observing today. Palm Sunday, if the Jews had accepted Him, could have been a great triumph for the Jews in particular because they would have recognized Him as the one that was promised, the Messiah who was to come, the one who was to sit upon David's throne in Jerusalem and rule over the entire earth. That did not happen on that day. But instead, Jesus came, although He would have been willing to be accepted as King, He was not. But He knew that in advance. Because he had told his disciples more than once, I'm going to Jerusalem and they're going to put me to death. They're going to crucify me. And on the third day, I will rise again from the dead. That was his goal, his plan, his purpose for entering into the city of Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday that we are here today observing. And we could have gone to several different portions of Scripture that spoke of these various things. Psalm 118 is a very particular psalm that Jesus himself quotes as he enters into the city of Jerusalem. And he says in that portion of Scripture that he was fulfillment of that which David, the, the wonderful psalmist of Israel, had pre, uh, pro, uh, prophesied about, proclaimed that the rock, the one that was promised, the stone that the builders rejected, has come. Psalm 118 is a beautiful psalm. The people were actually quoting portions of that same psalm when they beheld Him coming on the donkey into the city of Jerusalem, laying their clothes before Him, branches, everything, as He proceeded toward the gates of the city, they proclaimed, Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. They recognized this must be the fulfillment of what the prophet had spoken with regard to the Messiah coming to reign. That was a group of people who were his disciples. And many people were coming and agreeing with them. They saw this event and they came to the right conclusion. But the leaders of Israel did not accept it. And they turned the tide. 
Jesus was fully aware of all that which was going to take place. In fact, we're going to be talking about why he did come in the way that he did, because it was indeed in fulfillment of other scriptures that we want to point ourselves to here this morning. So I'd like to read with you the account in second chapter of the book of Philippians. Turn there with me. You'll find it after first and second Corinthians and Galatians and Ephesians and then Philippians. If you go to Colossians, you've gone too far. Philippians is a relatively short book written by the Apostle Paul. It's a beautiful epistle of praise and thanksgiving for the people in Philippi who were doing some wonderful works on behalf of their king. And in this portion of Scripture that we'll be looking at today, Paul opens up the entirety of the fullness of what God had in store for all of mankind by saying a very brief set of instructions regarding his first coming, regarding his death on the cross, and regarding his second coming as king. Verse 5 of chapter 2, the book of Philippians Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross." Therefore God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Verses 5 through 7 talk about his coming. As a servant. Verse 7, verse 8 rather, talks about his death on the cross. Verses 9 through 11 talk about his victorious return to reign and the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Father of all. These are things that we hold dear and true. These are absolutes. Jesus Christ came, according to the Scriptures, to suffer, according to the Scriptures and to die according to the Scriptures, and to be raised again according to the Scriptures. Paul tells us that that's the Gospel. That is the totality of God's Word to mankind with regard to this good news that God wanted to present to all of us. In that day, in the writing of this epistle during the time of the Apostle Paul and others who served the Lord with him and also throughout the church age, these words have been an inspiration to the church. Many, many commentaries have been made with regard to this particular passage that we read because it's so full of truth with regard to the way that God had intended all of us to understand the simplicity of this precious Word of God with regard to His promise to mankind. Again, verse 5 begins this particular part of God's Word with the statement, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Now that, to me, is impossible for me to absolutely 
understand it in its entirety, to comprehend in its fullness, how can I have the mind of Christ? There is an expression of deity here. And none of us can ever possibly attain to that level of understanding, that mindset that he had. And that's really what it means. It's not talking about the brain itself, the gray matter in our heads. He's talking about the mindset. He's talking about the uh, disposition that he had with regard to his coming to save the lost. It's talking about the fact that he was willing to go from where he was down to where we are, humbling himself to accomplish what God the Father had intended from the very beginning of all creation. That is the mind of Christ. His mind was set. And the writer of Hebrews, which I believe is Paul, and we're going to be looking at some of Paul's writings in the book of Hebrews later, but Paul, I believe, the Apostle Paul, writing the book of Hebrews, said very, very wonderfully well that... Jesus, despising the cross, looked beyond the cross to the glory that was to be His. He wanted nothing less than to be in His Father's presence. Nothing less to be restored to what He had before He came down. But the cost to Him and the cost to the Father was that He had to go through that process of becoming a man in the form of a man, in the likeness of a man, he was on this earth living out a life of sinlessness to demonstrate that he is indeed the only one that we can look to that satisfied the commandments of God, the demands of God, in that if you ever want to enter into the presence of the Father, you must be without sin, and Jesus Christ was. That's the fact. He was born of Virgin Mary, but he had no earthly dad. He came in the likeness of man. And we'll be looking at that more in a bit. But I just want you to remember, he here is telling us that we should have the mind of Christ. That we should be willing to at least go down that path that Jesus was willing to go down on our behalf and humble ourselves before that one true God and say, I'm not worthy for anything that Jesus has done for me. I'm not worthy of the sacrifice that He was willing to pay. I'm not worthy of the forgiveness of my sins. I'm not worthy of entering into God's presence and to hear Him speak to me as His only son or only daughter that He loves so dearly. Every one of us can be there to do that if we have believed what Jesus Christ has accomplished for us. This is wonderful news. This is the truth of the Gospel record as we have it presented to us in this short portion of Scripture. Verse 6 says, He, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made Himself of no reputation taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. I'd like to break that down with you, and we're going to turn to several portions of Scripture as we do that. Uh, first of all, I want you to take note of the fact that he says he was in the form of God. Now, we know from other Scriptures that God is formless. He's a spirit. God is not an entity that, that has a particular physical form like you and I do. God is spirit. But, God had made provision for mankind to enter into His presence. He is holy, we are not. And that provision was through the mediation of another man like you and I. Like 
but not exactly like. The one difference is that man that God chose to mediate on our behalf was a sinless man. The Christ that was sent was without sin, born of a virgin. If you go back to the Scriptures and you see in the presentation of the birth of Christ, you see the angel speaking to Mary and, and he tells Mary that that holy thing that is born of you shall be called the Son of God. He's not the son of Joseph. He is the son of Mary. She birthed him. She gave him life by passing from her womb into this world and began to live out his life of some 33 years. Mary was significant in that particular series of events that led to his birth and his life on this earth. She was his mother of the man, Jesus. But she's not the mother of God. You know, that's a fallacy that is presented in some churches. He is God, but she had the one role of being the mother of Him in His humanity. And we teach that Jesus was both fully God and fully human, combined in one body that was prepared from the foundations of the world. And that body was the body in which Jesus walked on this world as a man. He humbled Himself. He was in the presence of the Father, equal to the Father, because He was also part of that Godhead that we call the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You go all the way back to the book of Genesis and you find God creating It tells us, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And when you go to the New Testament, you read in John's Gospel, in the first chapter of John, that the Word was with God and the Word was God. And by Him all things were made. Nothing was made that was not made by Him. In other words, John tells us that He is the God of creation that is described for us in the book of Genesis. Later on in the same book of Genesis, we find God speaking. And God says, let us make man in our image. The word in the Hebrew for God is Elohim. It is a plural form of the word El. In Hebrew, that plurality can mean different things. But in the case of what is being spoken of in the book of Genesis, we find no other way of understanding this, and it's certainly not something that we can fully understand, but it seems that the persons of the Godhead were speaking with one another. You must understand, when he said, let us make man in our image, he wasn't talking to angels. Because angels are spirit beings, and they are not made in the image of God. Only man is. And so the one who is speaking, the creator of all things, the one who is speaking is the one that we refer to as the Word of God, the second person of the Trinity. The words that were spoken were spoken by Jesus in His pre-incarnate form to the Father, let us make man in our image. And the Father agreed, and the Spirit of the Lord hovered over them. All three are there in that specific place in the book of Genesis in the Old Testament. Because they all three... Our God. 
Again, back in John's Gospel, chapter 1, we see that this Word of God that John is speaking of is identified as the one who became flesh. He took on flesh. There's no question that he's referring to Jesus Christ. He is the light of the world, John would go on to say. But men loved the darkness rather than the light. They did not accept this Messiah that was to come and be the Savior of the world. But here in Paul's epistle to the Philippians, Paul is saying, He, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Take a look with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 4. The image of God. What does that mean? Made in His image. In His likeness. There's a sense in which we resemble somehow God in His present state. In the spiritual realm. And I have no idea how else to explain it but to say that since God is Father, Son, and Spirit, we must be also triune beings as well. That's one of several understandings of what it means to be made in the image of God. But I think it's a valid one. I think it's a correct one. And maybe other people who would think otherwise, but I'm going to stick with that for now. And I hope that you understand that this is not exclusively the only interpretation. But bear with me. And we look together at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, talking about the gospel that it was availing to the Jews that they couldn't see beyond, but God has made it so that in this age there is a way to understand the purposes of God through Jesus Christ. He says in verse 4, "...whose minds the God of this age has blinded." He's talking about the Jews who do not believe, and that's the rest of the world who have not yet accepted Christ as their Lord and Savior, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, the light, that's referring to Jesus Christ, of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is what? Who is the image of God. Jesus was the image of God. And that that image would shine on them, even though they did not believe. He shone this true light. He wanted them to see. But they blinded their own eyes, and they would not see. Turn to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1 is a marvelous book. Again, I believe this was written by the Apostle Paul. It's a theological book written to primarily Jews who understood the Old Testament rather well. And hopefully all of us at least have an understanding, perhaps in a limited sense, but I'd love it if everybody knew the Old Testament as well as they know the New Testament. But in the Old Testament, there were many things that were spoken with regard to Jesus Christ coming as the one, not by name, but by pictures, by types, by shadows. But here in the book of Hebrews, Paul writes these words. Verse 1 of chapter 1 in the book of Hebrews says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by His Son, whom He has appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the worlds. Jesus made the worlds. Verse 3 says, Who, speaking of Jesus, being the brightness of His, the Father's, 
who being the brightness of the Father's glory and the express image of His person, and upholding all things by the word of His power, when He had by Himself purged our sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as He has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. The psalmist tells us in Psalm 8, What is man that thou should consider him, and the son of man that thou would look to him? Paul is saying here that this one who called himself the son of man is greater than the angels. Not only that, that he is the express image of the Father. So when you see Jesus, what do you see? You see God. Does that agree with what the rest of the Word of God says? Absolutely yes. John chapter 14. And most of you are very, very familiar with this portion of Scripture. It's a story that Jesus Himself is speaking to His disciples, preparing them for the inevitability of His departure. And He's telling them, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in Me. In verse 1 of chapter 14 of John's Gospel. And then... Further down in John's Gospel, chapter 14, in verse 9, he says this. After Philip had said, Let Lord show us the Father and it suffices us. It will be sufficient to us if you just show us the Father. And Jesus' response is given in verse 9 of John's Gospel, chapter 14. He says this. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? What Jesus is saying is, look, Philip, open your eyes. You're looking upon the Father when you look into my eyes, Philip. Jesus was telling him so very clearly that he is indeed that express image of God. You look into a mirror, and you see the reflection of your face. That's all that it is. It's a reflection. It's a devised reflection because the mirror just basically takes the light that passes around you and reflects that which is passing through onto the mirror and back into your eyes and you see yourself. You walk away from the mirror and your image isn't any longer in that mirror, is it? Jesus is the express image of the Father. The image never goes away. The image never goes away. Now in the Old Testament, and we'll be looking at at that a little bit more in detail as we move forward from this, but remember, the Old Testament was written for the people of God, the Jews. And so much of the Old Testament was written in order to demonstrate very particular things with regard to the salvation of men. And we'll be looking at that as we move forward. But the Old Testament is referred to as a shadow of things to come. And I mention that because the word shadow is very important. It's like that image that just simply goes away after you move away from the mirror. The shadow also is similar in scope. The only way a shadow can be seen is if you've got a light that bounces off of you or some other object 
And the result is, if you look in the opposite direction, 180 degrees from the direction of the light falling on that object or that person, there is a shadow that is able to be seen. If there's no light, there's no shadow. Jesus is light. And because He is a light, we know that there's a shadow that represents that which He wants us to see. It's so very wonderful to think about this very truth that the shadows that were in the Old Testament were given so that we could see the real truth that God wants for us to see. The express image. That's what it means. The express image of God. He was in the form of God. And he took upon himself the form or likeness of man. In verse 7 again it says, He made himself of no reputation. O oh God, what is man that thou shouldst consider him? We're just a very, very insignificant being. Each one of us. Think about that. In regard to what God is, what are we? Some have said, I'm nothing but a worm. As a matter of fact, that's a quote from Psalm 22. I am a worm and not a man. That's actually Jesus speaking when He was presenting that portion of Scripture, Psalm 22, with regard to Himself on the cross, having been rejected by mankind. He pointed the Jews to that very passage of Scripture when He said, Why, Father, have You forgotten Me? Have You forsaken Me? My God, my God. Those are the very first words of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Jesus wanted them to see that he who was hanging on that cross before them was the one that was being described in Psalm 22. But in that psalm, he describes himself as a worm, not a man. He humbled himself. He came from something very, very wonderfully amazing beyond us in terms of who He is, and came down into this present world almost 2,000 years ago as a man. He made Himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, coming like in the likeness of men. I like the way Paul says that. Keep in mind, we all of us have an earthly father and an earthly mother. They came together at some point in their marriage relationship or their relationship, they had a child. That was you. There was something that each of them contributed to make that happen. The father contributed a certain set of chromosomes. The mother contributed another set of chromosomes. And when that egg was fertilized in the mother's womb, a human being came into existence. Conception. Nine months later... Or so, you and I came out of the womb and we inherited something from our fathers. It's called the sin nature. Everyone who has ever been born has had the same experience that we all have had. We come out of the womb and we are sinners. Period. There's no way out of that. It's part of the process. It is inherent in us because it was Adam who first sinned and that sin nature was propagated through the race of Adam into every person who has ever been born since then. 
until Jesus came along. Because Jesus did not have an earthly father. His father was God the Father. And by the Holy Spirit coming down upon Mary, He made it so that Mary could conceive in her womb from her chromosome set and God's that He provided for her. Don't understand how that could be done, but what was done was done by the Spirit of God according to the Word of God, and Jesus was the result of that birth. No earthly dad, therefore no earthly sinfulness passed on to Him from His Father because His Father was God. So that's why we say Jesus was without sin. A sinless being, although in the likeness of man, He looked like everyone else around Him, a human being. He had pain. He wasn't walking around with a halo over His head. You see that depicted in some of the pictures that you maybe have available to you, but he was just like you and I. As a matter of fact, on the cross, he was so mutilated that Isaiah would tell us that you wouldn't even recognize him. He was so mutilated. And he also says he wasn't anything really spectacular in terms of his appearance. He was just a man with normal man traits. Jesus, when He walked on the earth, during His three and a half years of ministry, in Galilee and in Judea, always referred to Himself some 80 plus times in the New Testament records, the Son of Man. He called Himself the Son of Man. And we talked about that the last time. That word or phrase, Son of Man, is a reference to Daniel chapter 7. And in that portion of the Old Testament Scriptures, Daniel is seeing the Ancient of Days, the Father, Godhead, seated on the throne, and then one like a Son of Man, or like the Son of Man, approaches the Ancient of Days, and the Ancient of Days speaks to that Son of Man and says, you are going to be one who will be given all power and authority. You'll come in the clouds to reign over the earth. That is a reference to Jesus Christ, our Savior, the Messiah, who was indeed in fulfillment of what was spoken of by Daniel the prophet as the Son of Man. And He was to come and to reign on David's throne. He being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. He was the equal of God the Father. How can we say such things? How can we be certain that Jesus thought of Himself as being God's equal? Well, in the Old Testament Scriptures, we find several various places where, especially in the book of Isaiah, God speaks and He says, I am the Lord your God. There is no other God beside Me. And I will not share My glory with any other God has spoken. He is glorious. And His glory will not be shared by any other being. Just God and Him alone. And yet, when Jesus, before He went to the cross, that very night that He was betrayed, He's approaching the Garden of Gethsemane. He's speaking to His disciples. And He begins then, before they enter into that garden, to pray in their hearing these words. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may also glorify you. As you have given Him authority over all flesh, 
that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, listen carefully, verse 5, Now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Jesus is proclaiming deity in that passage of Scripture. I am equal to the Father. He had said elsewhere, I and the Father are one. Do you understand what Jesus is saying here? He had God's glory that he had to dispose himself of to enter into that place that is described in this second chapter of Philippians. He had to, and the technical word for it by theologians is kenosis. It's based on a Greek word that's used in this passage that we've been reading out of Philippians, kenao, and it means he emptied himself. When it tells us that he considers it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. That's how it is translated in my translation that I have. But in the original Greek language, it says simply, he emptied. Now, there's a great deal of discussion about what it was that he emptied himself of. Some would say that he emptied himself of his deity. I don't believe that's true. But I think that what is clearly from the Word of God, that we can observe through the reading of God's Word. There's only that one place in John's Gospel where we find out that he basically had given up his glory. Whatever that may be, however that may look, that's what Jesus gave up. And he wants it back. And he's going to have it back when he is raised from the dead. But he has to go to first the cross to accomplish that. He made himself emptied, taking the form of a bondservant. That's another good word to study as you go through the words in the Bible that speak of Jesus Christ, bondservant. What does that mean? Well, the word in the original Greek language is doulos. And doulos means a servant who is set aside in a special case as a very, very important servant of his master. And it goes back to the Old Testament Scriptures where Moses tells the people of God who did have servants working for them, indentured slaves, but they were there as slaves only for a period of six years and in the seventh year they were to be set free if they were Jews. So there was a period of time when somebody as a Jew might run into financial difficulties or failure of crops and he couldn't provide for his own family so he indentures himself into the service of another who was more successful. And that one would become his master. And for six years that individual would serve his master willingly but knowing that he would be released in the seventh year and go back to his own farm and start over again it was a good way of keeping their welfare system intact. It worked for a while. But in the case of a servant who came to the conclusion after six years, I really like this guy. He's treated me really well. In fact, many of them would have perhaps married a servant girl under the same roof and had children by her, and now he's got a family that he's wanting to support. Now, he may end up deciding it will be better for myself and for my family 
to just let me stay serving this master for the rest of my days. And if he decides he wants to do that, he goes to his master to explain to him, I have loved being under your master, your headship, and I want to be your servant. I want to be your bond servant. And so what was done is very, very important. They took that servant's ear and drove an awl through the lobe of his ear into the doorpost. And in doing so, he was proclaiming himself to be always a bondservant of that particular master. Remarkable. Willing to serve somebody all of your life. That's what Jesus here is being described as having done. He became a bondservant. A bondservant. Made himself of no reputation. He humbled himself. Psalm 40 is a beautiful psalm and it's about the Messiah. Turn with me to Psalm 40. Beginning reading with uh, this account of David in verse 6 of Psalm 40. Where it says, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. My ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you did not require. Then I said, Behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O my God, and your law is within my heart. I delight to do your will. Jesus always did the will of the Father. And this is a wonderful place to go when you realize what Jesus was willing to do, He was willing to do because it was God's will, His Father's will. Jesus had said in the Old Testament Scriptures in agreement with what Jesus actually did in His life on earth. He always did the Father's will. Jesus would tell His disciples, I can do nothing except the Father tell me. He obeyed His Father. Even in the Garden of Gethsemane, remember His prayer, Father, if anything can be done to take this cup from me, please do so. He didn't want to have to take upon Himself the sins of the whole world. But He said, Nevertheless, not My will, but Yours be done. When the devil tried to persuade Jesus to take an easier route in the wilderness testings, remember, Satan tempted Him with all the kingdoms of the world and a few others as well. And Jesus' response in every case was, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Do not tempt the Father, Jesus would say to him. He always wanted to do just the will of God the Father. That was his purpose, that was his plan, that was his goal, and he accomplished it. But take note again in that psalm, It says, you have opened my ears. That's a reference to the bondservant letting his lobe of his ear being punched through with an awl to open, as it were, his ear. 
Now turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Paul is quoting Psalm 40. And I want you to take note of a small difference between the two. He says in verse 5 of chapter 10 of the book of Hebrews, Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, and this is quoting from Psalm 40, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but listen, but a body you have prepared for me. In Psalm 40 it says, But you have opened my ears. How does Paul get a body you have prepared for me out of that Old Testament Scripture? It's in idiom. A Hebrew expression. Paul is here quoting from a Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. It's called the Septuagint. Paul uses the Septuagint in many of the quotes that he uses in the New Testament Scriptures that we have. And here in this portion that Paul is quoting out of Psalm 40, the Septuagint writers, which all of them were Hebrews, they knew that when it said, you have opened my ear, that it had significant meaning with regard to preparing a body. And that's why they translated it that way into the Greek language from the Hebrew. And so we take the translation that we have in the New Testament that is here, written by, I believe, the Apostle Paul, a direct translation from the Septuagint rather than from the original Hebrew text. So the difference is only because of the fact that the writers of the Septuagint recognized that that phrase opened his ears was an idiom that referred to the preparing of a body. And that's why it's translated in the book of Hebrews that way. And it's significant. It's important. It is correct. There is no difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament Scriptures when you understand that that is a, an expression of the Hebrew language that is used very effectively to refer to the Messiah who would be given a body, as Paul says in the book of Hebrews, prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices, he continues to say in verse 6 of chapter 10, you had no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come. In the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. Again, Jesus came to do the will of the Father. Now, back in the Old Testament Scriptures, and we'll be talking about this a little bit in more detail in Thursday nights and also in next Sunday's messages as we continue to look at this very important portion of Scripture in Philippians. Keep in mind that it breaks down three different parts of the Scripture in a category all by themselves. The first few verses, 5 and 7, 5 through 7, talk about His first coming. Verse 8 talks about His death on the cross. We'll cover that on Thursday night. And the remainder from chapter 2, verses 8 through 11 of Philippians, talk about the fact that He will reign supreme. He will be exalted. And that's something that we all certainly do look forward to when we come together on Resurrection Sunday. But this Today, Sunday, this Palm Sunday, is a time of recognizing the fact that He came for a different purpose. He knew that He was coming for a different purpose. And that purpose was to come as the very substitute that a shadow was presented in the Old Testament which He would fulfill in its entirety and reality. 
So I go back to this, what is the substance? What is that shadow that he's talking about? Go back to the book of Exodus. And in the book of Exodus, we find that God is preparing His people to leave Egypt. He's going to deliver them from that land as slaves of Egypt. They couldn't just up and go. They had to get permission to leave. And Moses had attempted several times to get Pharaoh to convince him to let his people go. And each time, it met with opposition until the tenth time. And then when Moses came to him on that fateful day, and he said, you are going to let the people of God go because if you do not, every one of your people who do not follow this particular way of protecting yourselves, you are going to lose your firstborn of cattle, of everything. Every firstborn that is not covered by blood will be taken. Now that means that not only the Hebrews, but also every Egyptian that took part in this particular shadow would be spared. And what was that shadow? They were to take a lamb. On a specific day of the month, it was the tenth day of Abib, which corresponds to Palm Sunday. On that day, they were to take a lamb into their homes. And for three days, they were to have that lamb in their homes, and they would inspect it. They would make sure that there were no imperfections, there were no flaws in that lamb because that lamb would have to be sacrificed. The lamb would be taken as a substitute for their firstborn. And that substitute would die a death by sacrifice. Its throat would be slit, blood would be drained into a bowl, they would take a branch of hyssop tree, dip it into the blood and spatter the blood on the top lintel and the two side posts of each door. Take a look at the cross in the Old Testament. Jesus had a thorn crown on His head, blood pouring down His face, nail prints in His hands, both of them to the sides of the door, blood at the basin as it dripped down from the top to the floor as it enters into the house. This is a picture of Christ on the cross, people. In the Old Testament, it's a shadow of things to come. He was to be that sacrificial lamb, so clearly given to us in the Old Testament Scriptures as a shadow, as a type, as a picture of that which would be fulfilled in the New Testament through the very Son of God. That's why He came. A body was prepared so that He could be that substitutionary offering once for all. The beauty of all of this is simple. They had to do that Passover ceremony every single year. There were many, many other sacrifices that were required of them. In order to enter into God's presence, there had to be sacrifice. They had to have a substitute. Somebody had to pay for the sins before they could enter into the presence of very God in the tabernacle. He would accept no one into His presence unless those sacrifices were done. But none of those sacrifices, although they were done over and over again, they only covered the sin. They couldn't completely purge them of that sin. That's why when Jesus Christ came, He came as the Lamb of God. 
He came because God had sent him. It was God's will for him to die as that very Lamb of God. And that's what we'll be looking at the next time, people, in Thursday night service. We're going to come together and examine more fully this sacrificial system of the Old Testament and how it really does point to the cross of Jesus Christ. And what does that mean for you and for me? So please, consider coming and be a part of that service. And we'll stop there today.